So there's a lot of different themes kind of going on. Um, if you read the kind of headings, the alternate first reading, Zechariah and Psalm 145, specifically follow our gospel reading, which is really what I want to focus on is Genesis, Zechariah, Psalm 119, Romans and Matthew, primarily. So let's try to do all that. Um, so if you haven't heard before, what we kind of what we're looking at is what I want to incorporate every week is, especially in the Old Testament scripture readings, are the Christocentric or Christotelic themes. Um, and I love that we're in, we're in year A of the of the lectionary readings. Uh, we've been going through Genesis. Now we're in Genesis 24, where it's time for the father Abraham to find his son Isaac a bride. We looked at last week how Isaac was offered up on the altar of sacrifice, how God called him to lay that on the altar, lay him on the altar, the one, the one person whom all the promises were wrapped up in. And we see that we don't get the bride, and we're alluding to we don't get the bride until that sacrifice. So we come to Genesis 24, where Abraham is sending out his, in this chapter, it's his unnamed servant, but it could be Eleazar. If you go back to Genesis um, 15. It could be Eleazar. That's his servant at that time. But at this point, he's unnamed. He's only named once in scripture. Uh, if this is the same guy, it's not clear. But it, the scriptures choose, the Lord chose to keep, an, um, keep him unnamed uh, for this chapter in this capacity. So we didn't include all of chapter 24 um, for time's sake. It's like 67 verses. Uh, it's already six pages of reading for Teresa, and it would have been about 10. Um, but read the entire chapter and look for Christocentric or Christotelic themes. So you can kind of view this chapter as a recapit recapitulation or a summary of the entire Bible or, or, or most of the themes in the Bible of how there's a father, Abraham, sending uh, finding a bride for his son Isaac and the unnamed servant, the Holy Spirit, is the one that goes out and finds the bride and brings her back to the son, right? So some of the specific things I want to look at um, that will come into play a little bit later in when we look at the readings of Matthew and, and Romans and Zechariah is, is that like when the servant goes out and he's looking for a bride, he knows what he's looking for based on what his father told him. He's looking for a bride that's of his father's house, a Yahweh worshiper. It's not just any old person. Uh, there were qualifications you could say that he was looking for. And in this case, it was someone who was already knew who Abraham was. The servant doesn't go and say, hey, by the way, Abraham is this guy. You might have heard of him. You might not have. He's been over here fighting battles, gaining land. He went through Pharaoh's land. He said some things about his wife slash sister or whatever. Um, he, the servant doesn't say that. The servant, when he goes to Rebecca, it seems like she knows who Abraham is. He has got, Abraham has got some renown. He's kind of famous. If you do go back to chapter 15 in Genesis, he's the one that defeated the five kings with 318 men. That's like, who, are, who is this Abraham fella, right? And they're Yahweh worshipers. They know. And, and Rebecca gets the blessing from her brothers and partially from her dad. Um, but Rebecca wasn't just hearing about Abraham for the first time is the point I want to make. And so, um, you know, that, that's going to go into our Matthew reading. So before, I don't want to jump the gun. Um, 
but the the unnamed servant comes and doesn't just says hey here's abraham he's looking for someone he's famous you ready to go he puts a nose on a ring bracelets on he woos her he's like you're going to be the bride of his son you'd be like whoa that's crazy like i'm going to be essentially a princess um or as much as there could have been a princess back then and He's wooing her in. It's not just, do you want to accept this deal? It's going to be good for you. I'm going to give you gifts upon gifts, and I'm going to bring you on donkeys, and you know the virgin ladies are going to follow you in, and um, we're going to give you servants and, and stuff like that. So, you know, when that, that translates over, I'll get a little bit into the, um, you know, Matthew reading of uh, when I left two minutes before we started, uh, there wasn't a lot of people in the sanctuary, so I was going to make the joke about like last week's harsh message or a harder message about like repenting and stuff. It was like there would naturally be less people here, but it seems like most people turned out. Uh, where in our Matthew reading, he's even talking about like the gospel call is sometimes in that in that quotation is the the, the piping, right? Like I played the pipe and you didn't dance. There's sometimes a joyous time to celebrate. This is a great thing. And we, the gospel call went out, and in the Matthew reading, they didn't join him. But sometimes there's a dirge, a sad song, a time for weeping, a funeral song, repentance, uh, being those who are broken over their sin. And still, you, weren't, you didn't play the dirge with us. You still didn't join. Um, so what I'm saying is the, when the Holy Spirit's calling people, they're going to go through... Uh, times of, of this joyous piping, but also a, a dirge. There's going to be a sad song played. But when we see the unnamed servant coming, he's lavishing gifts, and he's saying, this is, this is Abraham's son, and you're going to be wed to him, and it's a totally joyous occasion. So on your own time, read through the entirety of Genesis 24 um, and kind of look for those themes and those in those ways, what we just read was um, Rebecca's kind of summary to her family. And when you read the chapter, you're going to hear the story like four times. When Abraham tells his servant, when the servant goes and, and does it, and then when uh, Rebecca tells her family, and then when the servant tells Abraham and Isaac. Um, but one of the things, one of the other things is the servant that just kind of, like what hit me most when I was kind of meditating on this and reading through is just that little line that it says, like, Rebecca sees Isaac from afar off. She veils herself and says, well, first she says, who is that? And that's my, um, that's my servant's son. That's who you're going to be wed to. She veils herself and the servant begins to tell her everything Isaac has done. And until that point, uh, we don't have a lot in scripture, except for he went up on the altar and he didn't die. <laughs> um, and we're going to see later on that he, he starts to unstop wells, he plants new wells and the symbolic meaning of that. But the servant starts to tell of all the deeds that Isaac had done. I just love that, thinking about how we're called through the gospel of all of the things that Christ has done, continually being reminded of all the things that Christ has done for us, all the things he is doing for this, for us, and all the things he will do, which is alluded in, in the brother's blessing that, that Rebecca and her descendants would possess the gates of her enemy. So let's go to that Zechariah passage. Read those. I just made a couple notes for that Psalm 45 reading. Um, 
And you can kind of look at that on your own time throughout the week and use those for meditation. So let's go to Zechariah 9. So uh, one of the obvious things to see is that Jesus fulfilled this uh, very specifically in Luke 19, Matthew 21, and Mark 11. And it, he does this specifically so he'd say it so that the scriptures would be fulfilled. He had no qualms with this physically being a prophecy where he physically rode on a donkey. And if you were reading that in uh, Zechariah's time or even in, in the first century in Christ's time, you know that prophecies are mostly allegorical. You probably wouldn't expect him to physically ride a donkey because a king doesn't come riding a donkey, right? To overthrow the Roman government, you don't ride in on a donkey. You ride in on a horse with thousands of people and you start overtaking the government, right? That was their idea. Um, if you look through the five different ideas in Judaism in that day, um, all of them were geopolitically related that we occupy this land, we're in captivity to Rome, and we need someone, the Christ, the Messiah, to overthrow the Caesar or you know, the one who's oppressing us uh, in a physical way, right? And then when you read that Zechariah passage, you actually, like, the first, I remember the first time I read Zechariah, um, not, I mean, I knew Jesus rode in on donkey and all these things from, from veggie tales or whatever. Um, I never, you know, I started to read the Bible for the first time and realized that Jesus literally, literally fulfilled this. But when you read Zechariah, like, everything's coming, like, he's saying I'm riding on a donkey because I'm lowly and gentle in heart. You don't expect him to physically ride in on a donkey. And so Jesus is calling that, you know, in his, in his ministry, he's saying, like, making those loud proclamations, like that everybody knew, every Jew knew, that this is me and this is my time, right? He doesn't ride most other places, you know, on a donkey. Uh, he specifically comes into Jerusalem. So, uh, but read that Zechariah passage. Let me pull it. Let me look at it real quick. I love how it. Uh, this is what, now picture this in a prophetic literature type of way, and then think of what literally happened when Jesus wrote in, humble people crying out Hosanna, the Pharisees, and people saying, "Teacher, like stop, stop your people. They're blaspheming, right? Because they're calling you the Messiah and worshiping you like your God." And he says, well, if they weren't praising me, uh, the stones would cry out, right? So uh, what's the next thing? In verse 9, it says that he's humble and mounted on a donkey, even on a, court, uh, on a colt, the fowl of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot of Ephraim and the horse from Jerusalem, right? That sounds great about Ephraim because they're not exactly the have turned into the greatest people, but and the horse from Jerusalem, I'm going to cut them off and the bow of war will be cut off. I'm bringing peace and he will speak peace to the nations and his dominion will be from sea to sea and from river to the ends of the earth. So you can see how he's like, even in this prophetic literature and Jesus is literally fulfilling it, how they had the wrong ideas about how he's going to fulfill that dominion, right? They thought he was going to come in with the sword bring peace, and everything's magically going to be okay. Well, different. Well, it depends on which camp of the Jews you were in. There were a lot that, that thought that way. 
what he's proclaiming through the blood of his covenant, right? He's going to set the prisoners free in peace and peace and peace, right? One of the more famous uh, passages that, that I like to, and we think about it all the time in Advent and Christmas, um, is Isaiah 9, right? That the government will be on his shoulders and the increase of peace and of righteousness will increase and increase and increase, right? It's not how the, the Jews in the first century were, were thinking he was going to do it. But, um, you know, he makes that proclamation that, like, I'm the God of the universe and I'm going to come on a donkey. And the funny thing is, I, I, I think God has a sense of humor. I really do. It wasn't even his donkey. I mean, yeah, God owns all the creation <laughs> in, a, in a real sense. But it wasn't even his donkey. Like, he didn't even have the money to say, let's go purchase. He decided not to. Maybe they did in their traveling. I'm not sure. Um, but he just said, go off into this town, and there's going to be a donkey tied up, and just tell him the Lord has need of it. It's not even our donkey. <laughs> it's not even my servant's donkey, right? Like, how much more humble can you get? So, but through that, um, through the God who is humble, who is meek and lowly in heart, who comes into his people, into his city, who is rejected, right? Through the blood of his covenant, he's, he's fulfilling uh, dominion and peace through all the earth. You know, not just Isaiah 9, but think of Isaiah 2 of like, you know, in the last days, the mountain of the house of the Lord will be raised up against all other mountains. And, you know, read until like verse 4 or 5, where it starts talking about through the word of the Lord, through his people, through the mountain of Jerusalem, through Zion, peace and dominion is going to be infiltrating the earth. And ever since Christ's resurrection and his coronation and Pentecost and the gospel proclamation, like peace is increasing in the earth. Every year you could statistically show that the world is getting more and more peaceful. And that's why I think we got a little bit more time because you could look and see the, all the unrest in the world today. But, you know, um, we're not like feeding people to lions. <laughs> the world dominating cultures aren't feeding people to lions anymore. Uh, that's pretty good. So uh, read Psalm 145, all about the God of mercy and his kingdom going out. His dominion is through all generations. Um, let's... Um, I guess let's do Psalm 119 real quick. At least I'll try to do it real quick. In the 11 minutes to get to the... The gospel reading is really the most important. So, um, read any kind of introduction to any Bible um, that has, you know, headings or... or um, study Bible that talks about Psalm 119 and, and how it's structured. But look at verse 90. You know, in that passage, the last verse, uh, 48, says that David was a lover of the law. You know, verse 97 in Psalm 119 says that he, David starts with, Oh, how I love your law. Right? And right in the middle bullet point there, you know, the synonyms he uses uh, is your word, your promise, the word of truth, your rules, your law, your precepts, your testimonies, your commandments, your statutes. All of these are synonyms for God's, for God's word, for the, for the law of the Lord. And when you look at David, who was, and what he was called to as a king, as a poet, and 
did some kind of priestly things, um, but mostly in the um, in the civic realm, you know, uh, what is it, James, I think it's James, that says, you know, lawlessness increases, and when lawlessness increases, you create more laws, because you're being lawless. <laughs> Who would have guessed? Uh, I don't want to get, like, into a whole lot of civics discussion, but, like, David was a lover of the law, of, like, and you read through not just the precepts of the ordinances and the sacrifices and the things like that, but, like, the, the purity laws and, and the societal laws and, like, read Exodus 22 about stealing and, like, you know, um, and, you know, what I think the Lord would have us do in a Christian, what the church would look like is a mini society, is a, that's what we're called to. And so we should look and we should love the law and operate in a way where we don't need a lot of laws, right? We're always going to need them because we're, Romans says that we try to do the law, but we can't. Um, but like if we're going to be a mini society uh, based on God's law, uh, we don't necessarily need people to hang over us all the time and tell us laws because that law should dwell in our heart and we should be empowered by the spirit of God to do that. Like if, um, I think who got in a, well, there's plenty of people who get in car wrecks in our church, but I think there was at one time, uh, back where we were at the old church, uh, two single brothers hit one of them hit the other car and it was able to be handled outside of going to court because they just handled it. Right. Sometimes that happens in the world too, right? If people are generally um, submissive in their hearts to what is the law of God, whether they acknowledge it or not, uh, can handle stuff like that. But I don't think the police need to be called, and I don't think we call the, the police a lot in our church on other on members of our church or at all, which is a good thing. Good, you guys are doing good. Um, but we should know the precepts. We should know like what are the bounds of what God says to love one another, right? Love God, love others, two sides of the commandments, whether you see that on the Ten Commandments of one through four and five through ten, or whether you see that as one through five and six through ten, doesn't matter, um, as how you divide it into loving God and loving people. That's what every law in the Old Testament and all of God's law is called to, right? We can recapitulate that, but we have to know how to do that. Read Leviticus, read Deuteronomy, love those books. Jesus quotes Deuteronomy more than any other Old Testament book directly. So, which brings us to, we love the law, we want to do the law. Romans 7 says, has this conundrum where I know what's right and I want to do that, but I can't. Amen. Let's go home. You and me both, brother. <laughs> no, sometimes I think we actually read it that way. Um, where, uh, let me look up the, the actual reference so you guys can um, um, see it. Was it right before, you know, verse 23 says, uh, or let's start 22, for I joyfully concur with the law in my inner man, but I see a different law in the members of my body waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, uh, which is in my members. Um, that's not the one I'm looking for. Oh, Verse 25, second part. I myself with my mind am serving the law of God, but on the other hand with my flesh, the law of sin. Yeah, you and me both. Let's go home, 
right? Next week, we'll get into um, chapter 8 of Romans where he's saying this isn't, shouldn't be the case. Don't stop there, right? Come back next week or read ahead. Um, you know, we have this dual nature in ourselves that we all wrestle with, that God like lovingly allows us to wrestle with. That like if you follow just when we've been starting our readings of, you know, in chapter 6 where it says like, like all of sin and fall short of the glory of God, Faith is a free gift from God. We've been justified by faith and we are no longer um, um, penalized for our sin. Therefore, should we keep on sinning? By no means, right? There's no excuse. We're culpable for our sin. We're supposed to see this free gift of grace that God offers to us in a penal substitutionary way that Christ died on our behalf. And we're supposed to look at the law of God understand it, and then say, and then we wrestle with this, we're at this point in Romans 7 where we wrestle and say, yeah, I want to stop sinning, but I can't. My flesh is enslaved. And part of that is, um, as we transition into the gospel reading, is I really believe in, in my best estimation in the whole epistle of Romans, verses 24 and 25 is the turning point, is is all of that is getting to, you're supposed to be saying, yes, you're supposed to be wrestling with this. Yeah, you're supposed to not be a slave to sin and be a slave to righteousness. But Paul, like you don't understand, like this is like really hard. Like, like I can't stop sinning. I can't stop doing these things. He's wanting you to get to a point where you're saying deep down in your soul, oh, wretched man that I am, who will save me from this body of death? Right? He, that's the turning point of where um, real faith starts. And we'll get into chapter 8 next week. And uh, I really encourage you to read all of Romans in one sitting and kind of look at how those arguments are built and Socratic one on top of each other. So now we get to the, to the gospel in Matthew. So when Jesus is saying, you know, we broke this, the scripture readings are... are broken up a little bit where these are disciples of John the Baptist being sent to him. And um, he's talking about like this generation, right? He's saying, I called this generation. I played a tune for you. It was a joyous thing. I came in speaking nice, so to speak, and you didn't join me. And then I came in playing a dirge and you didn't join me. And he's saying, you know, John the Baptist came eating and drinking or didn't come eating and drinking. And you say he has a demon. I came eating and drinking. If you need any proof that says, what a good book by Joel McDermott is What Did Jesus Drink? Uh, just look it up. Um, he said, I came eating and drinking. And uh, you say I'm a glutton and a drunkard, right? It doesn't matter what Jesus did for that generation. He says this generation. It doesn't matter what he did. They don't care. They wouldn't have followed him anyways. He raised Lazarus from the dead, and what did they start doing? What did the Pharisees start doing? We got to get this guy killed. We got we can't let this keep going on. He can't keep raising people from the dead, right? So, but that gets to the point of when in verses twenty-five through thirty, um, why he's saying that, why he's talking about this generation is rejecting him. John the Baptist came and proclaimed the gospel. All of the prophets came proclaiming the gospel. 
Jesus Christ himself started, came and proclaiming, you know, the gospel repent and that the kingdom of God is at hand. And he's saying, because just as he was the, in Zechariah, humble and lowly, you know, in heart, he was looking for the little children that he is well pleased to open their hearts, to open their eyes, to see these things. If you're here today, it's because God's calling you, right? Jesus says that uh, no one knows the Father except the Son, and no one knows the Son except the Father, and all that I have are given to me. And, and Jesus says that you know I'm the Son of Man, and the Son is the one who reveals it to people, you know, essentially. And He didn't reveal it to Caesar. He didn't reveal it to um, the high priest. He didn't reveal it through all these people who are you know Caiaphas. You can think of you know people throughout you know, in the Gospels, who are high priests that year, who's like, if anybody would have gotten it, it would have been those guys, right? They knew a lot. They were the wise and the intelligent ones. They are the ones who had, you know, notoriety. He calls fishermen. He calls people who are humble and lowly, who are childlike, right? And it says that he's well pleased to do it, or, you know, it's kind of the ESV, but also, you know, is that it pleases him to do it. Because he's, he's the God who is humble. He loves to get down on our level. You know, and when he, um, you know, why the incarnation is so, such an, like, who could fathom that? Like, that's crazy. Like, just meditate on the incarnation and the implications of God coming to earth. And then, um, you know, and becoming and putting on a human nature and flesh in such a way that he's fully human and still fully God. And think about like, he didn't come in like this powerful way that says, uh, that opens it to everybody. Like there's 120 disciples at the end. Like, good job. Like we could, you know, if we really wanted to, we could grow a church of 120 in like a weekend, you know, have a cookout or something or whatever. So his invitation there that says, you know, come to me, all who are heavy laden and burdened, and you will find rest. And um, that's something I've had to meditate on a lot, dealing with uh, anxiety, depression, things like that. It's because, like, the Lord, like, when he's calling people, those who are lowly in heart and humble, to come and find rest for your soul, nobody else can give you rest. For your soul. Now, I can be comforted a little bit, like when I get angry, I could work out or hit something or hit someone uh, or eat. And that's how my anger could kind of be staved. And uh, I don't hit a lot of people anymore. Um, but, but that's only, that could only work if those things are at hand. That could only work if those were perpetual feeding and they could never you know, actually find comfort. I can never find comfort in my soul in the depths of my person, you know, to, that that would be like an effective course going forward. Like, you know, always keep someone next to you that allows you to punch them or something. Um, but because he says he's humble, he says he's, he's gentle, but what is required to put his yoke upon you, to put his burden on your shoulders, to, and that imagery of like wrapping a work, you know, a yoke around your neck. And I don't know about you, but like even 
that doesn't like it's probably hard to get an ox or some kind of workhorse into that. They probably buck and kick until they're trained, you know. So Christ's invitation is is one because he's the one that came on the donkey. He's the one that submitted himself to the Father's will. And um, I'll allow myself to go like three more minutes. And, you know, I can think of times in my life where, you know, this isn't just like a spiritual principle that happens within you. Like God calls you to physically put his yoke on on your neck sometimes. And when I wrestled with like anxiety and depression and things like that, like I found great comfort in the scriptures because these words are true. And you can, and I also found great comfort in, uh, you know, the uh, idle hands are the devil's playground. And because there's Proverbs that, you know, lend to that idea in scripture, especially, you know, well in the book of Proverbs. And so I took very deep comfort in my soul and satisfaction in Christ. And I took his yoke upon me which called, always calls you to step out in faith and do something, right? Like if God's uh, calling you to, um, and he wants you to become a lover of his word, like David, you have to read the law. You have to read the word. You have to meditate on it. You have to physically do something. And he gives you ways to put his yoke upon you in such a ways that over time, it's going to get easier and easier to love it the more you do it. The more you love Christ, the more you love his yoke. So come to the one who can only give you rest. Um, like Daniel said this weekend, that's all I got. <laughs> Let's worship the Lord.